We're encouraged to count our blessings, and I can say um, one of the blessings of COVID is that with the distancing, it's forcing people to some people to move a little further to the front, and I don't so feel so alone way up here as when you're all in the back, back three or four rows. So, so that makes me feel good that uh, people aren't scared of me. Um, but yeah, I trust that that in uh, in these times you're able to find many things to be thankful for. We still uh, have good friends and families, live in a good land, and and should be thankful. But um, we're opening our Bibles today to Zechariah, and uh, perhaps uh, for some of you it's a big relief because you realize that this is the second last of the Old Testament, and we're almost finally through the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to have some holidays in November, uh, do some tie-together themes and some Christmas messages, and then the new year we'll, we'll jump into the New Testament and, and keep moving through the books uh, of the Bible. Uh, so others of you, uh, I hope, uh, will be disappointed because uh, I, I found it to be very rich, as I know some of you have through the Old Testament. And of course, with these one Sunday per book, I'm just barely touching on them. And I just want to encourage you as well that we started last night uh, with, with one of our members, Michael, over here, uh, teaching from the Minor Prophets. From the, and uh, last night we started, and we're going to, or yesterday morning, I should say, we started. Tonight, he's going to give us another session, and then next weekend, Saturday morning, Sunday night as well. So you're welcome to join us in the church basement tonight at, uh, what time is it, 6.30? 6.30 uh, for that, and... Uh, it's really um, just the first session so far, but it's been really uh, insightful and, and fun to, to dive a little deeper into some of this stuff than I've been doing Sunday mornings uh, and take a, a different kind of approach to studying these books. Uh, but today we have Zechariah before us. Now, if you remember, some of you were here last week or maybe watched online. Um, last week we looked at Haggai. And today is Zechariah, and it's almost certain that these two men knew each other. Now, they don't mention each other, uh, but what we do know is that Zechariah started his ministry uh, two months after Haggai's first message. And they were speaking both in Jerusalem, which at the time did not have a large population, and they were both addressing the king and the high priest, uh, only two people, uh, and uh, at the same time, so, so I, I think we can, we can summarize that they, they must have known each other. They were speaking to the same people about the same things at the same time. Uh, two prophets, two prophetic books, but you couldn't have two more different messages. Speaking to the same issues at the same time, but, but very, very different approaches uh, Haggai is practical. He's simple and short and to the point. Uh, get building the temple. Uh, his, Haggai's uh, desire, Haggai's uh, outcome that he's looking for from his message is real world behavior. Pick up a shovel is what Haggai was after. Now, Zechariah is mystical. He's all over the place with wild visions and strange teachings. And he's focused not so much on pick up a shovel with your body, but he's focused on 
inside your heart and soul spiritual renewal. And um, both are needed. Both are important. Uh, Just as a little aside, we can see here in these two prophets the importance of of a variety of spiritual gifts and ministry abilities in a a group of people. Um, I don't think the temple would have been built if they didn't have both of these very different messages that inspired different parts of um, of what's important to people. God uses many different individuals with different gifts to get his work done. But we can look at their two ministries in a, in a different way as well. We, we can consider that the building of the physical structure of the temple, as Haggai refers to it as the house of the Lord, really wouldn't have any value if the people that then worshipped in that house didn't have the spiritual renewal to actually approach God properly. And so that's what Zechariah was, <clears throat> was after uh, on the other side. Last week we noticed that Haggai um, identified the problem as priorities. Uh, The people had shifted their priorities from putting God and his work first, building the house of the Lord as their first priority, and instead they were building their own houses and renovating the bathroom and and, uh, doing doing things to to make their own uh, surroundings in their homes and vineyards uh, nice. And again... It wasn't that they weren't supposed to build their own houses. The, the problem that Haggai identifies is that they, they'd made their own houses priority one and God's house priority two. And he's trying to get them to switch that around. Now, so that's Haggai's message, and I'm not talking about that. You can go back on our website and, uh, and listen to that message again, or if you missed it, you can, you can go there. Uh, but this morning we're looking at Zechariah. What's his topic? Well, that's what we're talking about. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to uh, provide an illustration that helps me. I hope it helps you when we approach a book like this that has, has wild and crazy visions uh, that are hard to understand and pick apart. Um, but I think there's a way in without doing the uh, massive amounts of study to connect it all uh, throughout the whole Bible, that, 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 that we can gain something between God and us in our relationship in this kind of writing. And the illustration that I want to use is, is as you can see, Vancouver Aquarium. Uh, you remember a few Sundays ago I told the story about my first meeting with a black bear in the woods that turned out to be a stump? Well, on that same trip, uh, we ended up in Vancouver and we visited the Vancouver Aquarium. Now, for me as a young boy, that was that you couldn't have gone to a better place. It, it just was. Uh, I could have spent days there, but my parents only wanted to spend hours, so that's what we did. Um, but but if you've ever been there, you'll know this. And if you haven't been, I think even just four pictures from the Vancouver Aquarium gives you the the insight I'm looking for here. And what you have in the Vancouver Aquarium is you have you have. Numerous, I haven't counted them, but, but many, many windows into a world that's completely foreign to you. Uh, they're called aquariums. You look in the window and there's a jellyfish or a, an enemy or a beluga whale or a sea turtle and you see it and it's well lit and it's beautiful or it's ugly or it's scary or whatever it is and, and you're fascinated by, by what God's creation has in it. And it's all from under the oceans. 
uh, inaccessible to us, but now it's been, it's been brought into a, a little window of the ocean that we can see and appreciate and, and, and at least gain some level of understanding. Um, it gives us a hint of much bigger things. Because when we look into these, you know, to us they're huge aquariums, but compared to the actual ocean, they're just tiny. They're just tiny insights into what's actually out there in the oceans. And so it's fascinating. Now, a few days later, after visiting the Vancouver Aquarium, we were in Victoria, and we went to the Undersea Gardens. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to both of these places, but the Undersea Gardens is very, very different than the Vancouver Aquarium. The Undersea Gardens, if you look at the picture here, it looks like, it actually looks like a boat, but it's a dock, it's a floating dock, And you go down into the middle of it, and when you're in there, you find out that you're the one in the aquarium. Now, luckily, there's no water in it, but the windows that you look out of aren't into an aquarium. They're into the actual ocean. And so it's quite different. Now, I know they've got nets that keep the sea lions out and stuff like that, but you can't see any of that. As far as you can see when you're in there, you're just looking out into the Pacific, And uh, so there's not nearly as much variety. It's only things that actually live in the harbor in Victoria. Um, Most of it is drab. The fish might be out in the back and you don't get to see them. I remember uh, the little plaque said there was an octopus that lives under this rock, but we never saw it. Whereas in the Vancouver Aquarium, the octopus was in a four-sided aquarium and it didn't matter where the octopus was, you got to see it. Very different experience. And um, if the water in the harbor had, had had a storm and it was murky and full of sediment, then you didn't see much. It was the real ocean you were looking into. And so I think real life is more like the Victoria Undersea Gardens than like the Vancouver Aquarium. There's a small piece of the world that's kind of illuminated to you. You can see it, you can identify what's there, and most of it's pretty drab and colorless. Now and then you might see a bright pink uh, starfish, uh, but you get the sense that just out there beyond your perception, there's more. And today when we look at Zechariah, we're we're thinking about spiritual life. We, We have a sense that there's realities, that we maybe have some experience of you know maybe a fish swims into view now and then and then out of view again we get a sense there's spiritual things we experience an answered prayer someone we know uh, is healed when people pray over them or or we uh, we we walk with someone through the experience of confessing their sins and accepting Jesus and and the transformation we see in their life and we know the spiritual things are there and they're real but they're kind of vague and often clouded And we don't get a clear view. And we can just see enough to take a few steps. And sometimes it's scary because there might be a killer whale or a shark out there in the waters. And we can't tell. But there might be something amazing to see. And and so it's more like that. But what what, uh, Zechariah, Zechariah does is he gives us a view of that spiritual world like the Vancouver Aquarium. He gives us a series of visions that that give us a clearly lit picture of what's happening in the spiritual realm 
not the ocean realm, but the spiritual realm, which, is, which most of the time seems just outside our reach. We sense it's there. We have some experience of it. But Zechariah gives us each vision as a vivid picture of the spiritual reality. But like the Vancouver Aquarium, they're disconnected. Uh, in, the, in the undersea gardens, it's all one ocean. In the Vancouver Aquarium, it's a little window into the Pacific Ocean. It's a little window into the coral reef in, uh, in Australia. It's a little window into the Arctic. And, and so we get these, these windows, and you'd have to spend days there reading the tiny little plaques that describe what's in the aquarium, and then, and then you'd have to take notes, and then you'd have to compare them to each other to kind of figure out, okay, would that turtle ever eat that jellyfish? Nope, they're in different oceans. Well, how, where would I have to go if I wanted to see that one? Or, you know, so you'd have to put it all together. It's not, it, they're just a picture here, a picture here, a picture here. Uh, vivid and clear, but disconnected. And that's kind of what this thing that we sometimes refer to as apocalyptic literature in the Bible is so often like. Because God gives the prophet a vision of what's real in the spiritual realm. And it's too much. It's too much for the human to take in all at once. It can't be described in human language to its full extent. And so they try. They give us these pictures. And, and they, they give us a, a sense of what's there, what's real, without, uh, without all the details. And I think when we, when we are raised with the Lord in glory, we'll have eternity to explore the wonders of that realm. Looking forward to that. It's probably too much time on the illustration, but uh, it really helps me to, to look at something like Zechariah and, and uh, just get something out of it. And I want to show you a little bit of that, and then I'm going to encourage you to, to open your own Bibles and, and look in the windows yourself. So in Zechariah, God says, believe what you cannot see. Live your life in reference to these things that you sense are there but are just just beyond your vision a lot of the time. Sometimes you see a bit, but believe. Live in that reality. Live by faith. What we see is a few colorless fish, occasionally a starfish, and we're vaguely aware of bigger things. Um, That's what the people that Zechariah and Haggai were talking to had succumbed to. They only saw small things, that seemed to be of no value. When they looked at the temple they were building, it seemed insignificant. How could this have an impact? How could this be important? It's so small compared to Solomon's. It's insignificant. We probably can't finish it anyways, even if we put all our effort into it. So why would we continue? And they were discouraged. So what Zechariah does is he pulls back the curtain. So they can see through the windows into the spiritual reality and be encouraged to continue the work. What I've done is something a little different with Zechariah. It's, it's just this series of visions, as I said. I, I found in a, in a commentary an outline of Zechariah. And it has this vision, this vision, this vision. It says verse, chapter 1 verses this to this is this. You know, you, you get the picture. It's, it's just a series of these, these visions. 
And I took four visions, one from the first part of the book, one from the middle, another from a little later in the middle, and one from the end. And I just took the references out of that chart and put them on my page, and then I looked them up. So I took them randomly, and I just thought, I'm just going to share four random visions uh, from Zechariah and just just spend a few minutes on each one, uh, meditating, see what we can bring out of that, because we can't visit them all. And, and they're, they're really not in a consistently clear order that you can make an argument of the whole thing. I think we're, oh, we're still up there, not there. Okay. So the first one is Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 to 13. During the night, I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, What are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest, And in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold your mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Let's just consider two things with each of these visions. The first thing is, what did it mean to Zechariah? and the people he was speaking to. I think it's, when you put it in that perspective and know the story that we got into detail last week, it's not hard to understand. The people trying to build the temple had experienced and were experiencing opposition from the people around them. The, the, the people that lived in the And the land around them didn't want to see Jerusalem rise up again. They didn't want to see the temple uh, being built. And so there was opposition. And that's part of why they were discouraged. And so God, through Zechariah, pulls back the curtain and gives them a little picture into what's happening in the spiritual world. And this is what's happened. God's armies had gone out around the world. And they'd come back to report and say, it's at peace. We've done our work. The forces that are out there will not impede and will not be able to stop the building of this temple. You're protected. You're guarded. And so, yeah, you're going to have to figure out the politics of relationships with your neighbors. You're going to have to pick up a shovel and dig a hole and put in a foundation stone. You're going to have to do all that stuff. But it's not coming from great spiritual opposition around the world that's going to come in and crush you. God's armies have taken care of that. You're going to be okay. You're going to get it done. So take courage. So he pulled back the curtain and said, yeah, there's a spiritual reality that was trying to stop this temple from being built, but we've taken care of it. It's done. There's peace. Well, that would have been pretty encouraging if you believed it. Uh, Zechariah proved to be a a prophet of God that people could trust, and, and it was encouraging, and it built them up spiritually. So that's what it meant to them. Now what does it mean for us now when we read it so many years later? 
I mean, we don't have that vision specific to us. We can't be sure that the angel armies are out there and said, it's at peace, what you're doing is going to succeed. But we can be sure of this. Whatever it is that God wants to do out of our work here in Wainwright, those horsemen are still out there. Whatever God has given them to do, they're doing. And we're reminded when we read something like this in relationship to our projects from Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And it's so easy to get fixated on the things that seem to be in our way and not realize that the real battle isn't in the politics or the opposition or the, uh, the COVID. or the that, That's not the enemy. Yeah, we've got to deal with those things. But the real battle is being fought by those horsemen directed by God and his will will be accomplished. So we can take courage from that as well. So there's much more in that vision, but that's all we're going to look at. We're going to move on to the next one. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not... Is, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, I, like I said, I picked these out at random. I didn't know what was in them when I picked them. But that one kind of hit me close to home. Uh, I, I would be uh, false if I didn't say the accuser has come to me through the time when the church was closed down. What are you doing? Um, it's going to fail. Of course those things came, but that's not what I want to talk about. What does this mean? What does this mean to Zechariah and the people he was speaking to? It's obvious that the high priest, who was supposed to be the leader in this work of building the temple, was demoralized. And he was feeling unworthy to do the work. Now, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination for a minute. This is not from the Bible. This is my imagination about what's being described here in terms of what was happening on the ground. So just just bear with me as I do that. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But imagine this. These people who were in Jerusalem trying to build a temple had grown up and lived in Babylon. Now, I imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I imagine they were forced from time to time to go to the temple of the gods in Babylon and watch the spectacle. What would they have seen? There would be great pillars, uh, great murals, there would be throngs of people, and they would see the, the, the minor priests marching up in their ranks to the, the idol of their god in great pomp and ceremony and incense and candles and 
and everything. And then the, the intermediate priests would come in and sing their choruses and do their thing. And in the, in the middle of this thing, all of a sudden there would be a great flash of explosives. And there on the dais before the idol would be the high priest in glittering diamonds. And just out of view behind the pillars would be ranks of slaves with fans so that his cape was blowing. And you get the picture. I'm just imagining it. I don't know. But I think from what I do know of history, they, they, they put on the best show. They convinced the people that their priest was everything. So you've seen that back in Babylon, the high priest, what a high priest is supposed to look like. But here you are trying to build a temple that's tiny compared to Solomon's, tiny compared to the temples back in Babylon, and unimpressive. And you're digging in the dirt and shoulder to shoulder with the high priest. And you're digging and the high priest swings at a rock with his pick and he hits his shin and he says things no high priest should ever say. And he tries to work but the rest of the day he's short tempered. And he he says things to you, he says things to others and finally he's just sitting there on a rock while you're trying to keep working and sweat's pouring down his brow and his shin is still bleeding and, and he, he yells at you again, and then he limps off home. You can see the sweat down his back. And what do you and the other workers do? You yell back at him, you're no high priest. We've seen a high priest. You don't look like one. And then you go home. And then tomorrow, instead of coming back to the temple to build it, you decide to renovate your bathroom instead. More productive. I don't know. It's my imagination. The high priest was feeling demoralized and unworthy and dirty and unable to lead the people in the work. And God gave Zechariah a vision to give to the people that said this. I know he looks dirty. I know he looks ordinary. I know he looks normal. Maybe even unworthy. To you, But in the spiritual realm, in heaven, right now, he looks glorious. God's mercy has visited him. And all his dirty clothes, which are a symbol for his sins and his words that he said, have been taken off. And the throne room in heaven where this is happening is far beyond what you saw in Babylon. The glory, the splendor. And that's where your high priest stands spiritually. Far and above. Having been forgiven and cleansed. With a crown on his head. So look at him from that point of view. From what's real. Just pull back the curtain and look into the spiritual world where his sins have been forgiven and he's worthy because he has experienced God's mercy. And then get up behind him and do the work. It's beautiful, isn't it? What does that mean for us? How do we look at each other? Do we look at each other as we look in this dirty world where we get stained and sweaty 
Or do we look at each other the way Jesus, the way God does through Jesus Christ with the righteousness of Christ upon us? So we can't do anything significant with this rowdy bunch of people. I mean, that one hurt my feelings last week, and I can still remember what that one said, and, and uh, that one doesn't dress properly. and like, We can go on and on. But Zechariah is saying to us, look at one another the way God sees us through Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Sins have been wiped away. And in God's eyes, we're holy. You know, the Bible never, re- never refers to a Christian as a sinner, only as saints. Now, it's completely honest about the fact that we sin. But the spiritual reality in Jesus Christ is the greater, more real reality. And that's what Zechariah's vision is showing us. Your dirty clothes have been taken off and clean ones are on. We could go on. Any of these could be a whole. We should do that sometime, right? Go through Zechariah. Uh, vision by vision, Sunday after Sunday, spend a whole Sunday on each vision because there's so many other places we could go with these throughout the scriptures. But let's go to the next one, Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to have to go faster because I'm looking at the clock. But Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war houses from horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule his his extend his rule will extend from sea to sea, from river, from the river to the ends of the earth. I guess I'm going too fast. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Again, there's so much there, but I'll just mention a couple of things. What did it mean to Zechariah and the people trying to build the temple? Well, it meant this. It meant that the work you are doing is not insignificant. It is in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. The very streets you build in Jerusalem right now, the Messiah will walk down. The very pillars you're putting up, he will stand between and teach his disciples. It's not insignificant. It might seem insignificant to you. But God's given you this task because it's part of his project. What you're doing is dusty and dirty, but it is a participation in the salvation plan of God for all the world. What does it mean for us? See, they were looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking backward in faith to the Messiah. But we too are tempted to feel weak and powerless. I don't know if they saw in Zechariah's day the significance of of that vision in terms of the donkey and the broken bow. But we look at it now and we see that that is in fact how Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Not in power and strength with tanks and guns, 
but on a donkey in humility to a cross. Our king, it sometimes seems like we're weak and powerless in this world, that our work in the church is not of much significance. But this vision shows us that our king comes and he rules with a different kind of power. He doesn't rule with chariots and bows. He doesn't rule with tanks and guns. He doesn't rule through elections and news cycles. His strength is faith, hope, and love. And these things will last forever while all the others fail. So if you're working on the project that he's given us to build the church, his temple, you're working for eternity. And it is worthwhile, no matter how dark and dusty it seems. Zechariah chapter 13. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my head against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third will bring in, I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. What did this vision mean? This, this window into the spiritual realities. What did it mean for Zechariah and the people he was speaking to? It meant this. God has done what he said he would do. He can be trusted. Because they all knew that previously Jerusalem had been filled with people. But they'd been defeated and scattered. But that was only the fulfillment of the covenant. Because the covenant they had made with Moses said, Obey these laws and you will be blessed, disobey them, and you will be dispersed. So God had done what he said he would do. But now you, you people who are here in Jerusalem now, you're the remnant that was spoken of by the prophets. You're the chosen, the carefully chosen one out of the many that I, by my strong arm, have brought back to Jerusalem to do this work. You're not insignificant. You're specially chosen. I could have chosen any from the many that were spread, but I chose you to come here and do this work. And yes, it's hard because it's a work. What God is doing is the work of a a refiner with fire. And he is applying heat. But the the purpose of the heat is to burn off the dross and make strong and pure and beautiful the chosen. So what you're complaining about is really this refiner. God is now in picture, in view. The previous version was the Messiah, Jesus. This vision is God the Father. He's carefully tending the flames, making sure they don't get too hot so the metal gets brittle, making sure they're hot enough that the impurities are burned off. It's not always comfortable, but he's carefully tending and working. And what the, the... It's not random. It's because you've been chosen. 
So what, it, what does it mean for us now? Well, maybe it feels like a bad year. But whether I'm the, the scattered sheep or the dross, or whether I'm the gold and precious silver that's refined, really depends on my reaction. Does the fire burn me up or does it deepen my faith and make me stronger? Does it increase my love? Does it give me hope? Or does it steal those things away? It's really my reaction to the trial that determines which is me. Again, that's, that's just the surface. We, we, we would have to go much deeper into those things to to cover all the ground, but we have to come to a close. In Zechariah, God says, believe what you cannot see. Let me expand that. If I was to put that into a fuller sentence that doesn't fit there. In Zechariah, God says, if you could see right now, not in Zechariah's day, right now, today, If you could see right now what is happening in the unseen world, you would be filled with hope. You can trust me, God says, for for whatever tastes of glory I choose to provide to you as you continue to do my work. Do you believe it? Is it real? We live in a physical world that is surrounded by a spiritual, eternal reality that in Jesus Christ we can have a relationship through the temple which is his church. As he is our high priest. Holy and blameless. That covers our sins. And what we do, the accuser tells us, it's of no significance. It's okay if it falls to second or third priority. Or do we believe that in the spiritual world, what God has called you and I to do is a first priority in his desire to save all people? Would we give it Would we give it that kind of priority? Would we have the hope and the courage? This is rich material. I just touched on four of the visions. Maybe it's a template that you can go back into Zechariah and read it yourself and and look at the other visions and see what encouragement is there. For that is its purpose, to encourage us to do God's work. That was its purpose then. The work was different purpose is the same. Now I think of it a little bit like um, maybe a connecting point we could make is, do you remember Jacob when he'd done a bunch of wrong and was running for his life? And he was discouraged and he probably thought, okay, whatever God's promise for my life was, I've ruined it, that's it, it's over. And he put his head down on a rock to sleep for the night and God gave him a vision. It was a vision not from Zechariah, but it was a vision of a, a ladder to heaven, a staircase with, with angels coming and going. And he took from that 
God's still here. There's an intersection between heaven and earth. The spiritual realm and what happens in the physical realm are connected to each other. I can't always see it. But I sense it's there and I believe that my obedience is a contribution in that spiritual reality. My favorite verse in Zechariah is chapter 14, verse 7. At evening time it shall be light. He takes and and switches the normal order around. No, at evening time it's dark. In the morning it's light. But this is his word of hope. When you think it's getting dark, when you're getting discouraged, in the spiritual realm, the lights are just coming on. Open your eyes with faith and hope and love and believe. Just when you think it's getting dark, that's when God's coming and turning on the lights.